Amen. Well, I invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. As we began our study of this chapter last week, I was reminded of a Christmas day not too long ago. My daughter was either four, three or four, and uh, she got all these presents. We were at uh, uh, Grammy and Papa's house, and you know how grandparents just want to lavish gifts on their grandkids, and so it was gift after gift after gift, just this massive amount of gifts. And as we were done opening presents, and I turned to Chelsea and I said, Chelsea, which one do you want to play with? Let's play with one. Like, pick one, we'll play with one. And she went around just picking up all of them. And she would say, this one, and grab it, this one, this one, this one. And she'd just grab all of these toys. I want to play with all of them. This one, this one, this one. And she'd go around grabbing all of them. And as she had her hands full with all of the presents, she would inevitably start dropping ones that she couldn't hold on to, trying to uh, fill her arms with other ones. So grabbing all of them, she couldn't hold on to any of them. And so finally I said, Chelsea, you have to just pick one. Pick one. She said, this one. And then we played with that one. The reason why I I say that story is it feels like that's where we are now in Revelation chapter 20. You remember last week, we looked at the three main views, just kind of an overview. We haven't even gone into this text yet. Just kind of an overview of uh, the main views regarding this text and how we are to approach the differing views. But now as we come to this text, and we're still not going to dive deep yet, that will be reserved for next week. But as we come to this text, we're kind of like my daughter, where we have to pick one. We have to pick one of those views. Uh, we, We can't just hold all of them and say, we'll take all of them. We have to pick one. Now, you remember from last week, the three main ways that Revelation 20 is typically taken is either premillennialism, remember millennial kingdom, thousand year reign of Christ, either pre-millennial, and remember this is all in uh, relation to when Jesus returns. Does he return pre-millennial kingdom before the millennial kingdom and establishes a literal thousand-year reign uh, with his people on the earth? Does he return post-millennial? Post-millennialism would say that the millennium is brought in by the church As we Christianize the world, we bring the gospel to the world, the world becomes a Christian as a whole, and we enjoy a thousand years of Christ, uh, his kingdom being here on earth, uh, him not being here yet, but present through the Holy Spirit, through the church, and then he returns after the kingdom has been enjoying a period of a thousand years, he comes back post-millennium. Or, third view is amillennialism, ah, the alpha primitive negating the term that comes after it, like Uh, atheism or agnosticism, no knowledge, no theism, no God. Ah, millennialism would say there's no literal millennial kingdom, there's no literal thousand years, but instead it it refers to the church age. So Jesus dies on the cross, he's buried, he's raised from the dead, ushers in the church age. This is the millennium where Jesus rules and reigns. Satan is bound, as we're going to read, And then the next thing that's going to happen is Jesus is going to come back and establish the eternal state. That's heaven and hell forever. That's the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, and the lake of fire forever. So we're at a place where we have to pick one. Now, before we pick one, 
We have to remember what we studied last week, and that's why we started last week. That's why we're, we're slowing down. Typically, we don't do what we did last week, and we're, we don't typically do what we're doing this week. So these are very atypical mornings for us as a CBC church family. We, we are slowing down to give an overview of main views because this is probably the most hotly debated text probably in the whole Bible, and it does change the way that you view and read the whole Bible. So we need to slow down and talk about the views. We also need to slow down and talk about how to disagree because as we pick one, we are necessarily saying we're not going to choose the other two. So what do we do? Do we look down on them? Do we look down on them, think less of them? Like, this is why we spent the majority of last week talking about how to disagree with people who hold differing theological and doctrinal views. And if you weren't here last week, totally fine. Go back online, watch the message, listen to the message. It's imperative that you understand that before we even dive in today. We talked about the argumentation for a theological triage. We need to know there are categories and tiers of, uh, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, doctrines that are of, of first importance, of utmost importance, and then doctrines that are of second importance and third importance. The, the gospel is of utmost importance, of first importance. The millennial kingdom, though important, is not unimportant, but the millennial kingdom is not a salvific issue. And so we had to fight hard uh, last week with how to take differing views and understand doctrinally what we are to do and do it charitably. That leads us really to point number three from last week. We talked about what are the views, what do we do when we disagree, and then how are we going to take Revelation 20? How are we going to understand this text? And that's what we're going to tackle this morning. And again, it's a broad overview. We aren't even going into the text yet. I want to read Revelation 20, but we're really just going to have a Bible study. This is much more of a Bible study and less of a sermon. We'll get to the sermon aspect towards the end. But this is going to be a Bible study together. We're going to be flipping through a lot of pages in the Old Testament to understand how we are going to take Revelation 20. So let's read it together. Revelation 20, the entirety of this chapter, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these things, the, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. 
He will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, we come again to this text and we desire to understand it rightly. We desire to rightly divide the, the word of truth, accurately understanding it. And we want to do so with last week's message under our belt, as it were, to make sure that we have a foundation of how to charitably uh, agree to disagree with those that might take different stances on this text, knowing they're brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't a gospel issue. At the same time, God, I pray that we would see the importance of these verses. That we would understand the reality of what is before us, even in this time, as we study your word, as we go back to the Old Testament. I pray that we would be undone as we stare at your character, as we stare at your faithfulness, as we stare at your trustworthiness, as we stare at you being a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And I pray in turn that we would come before you and stare at the promises that you've made to us, knowing that you will keep every last one of them. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes now. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We cannot see what we need to see and grow in the areas that we need to grow apart from your Spirit doing the work. So, Father, be pleased to grant the gift of illumination to open our understanding to see, to know, to realize, and to apply. May we not remain unaffected and unchanged by our time in your word this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 20. We are just going to do one last broad overview. So bear with me. One last sermon before we dive into the actual text in verses 1 through 3 that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. We are going to dive in deep. It's going to be amazing. I'm super excited for it. But one last sermon to give an overview, okay? So we're asking the question. We asked three questions last week. What are the views of this text? How do we disagree with those that might hold a different view than we hold? And now we come to the third question. It's really all we're going to tackle this morning. How are we going to understand this text? 
Another way you could ask it is, what's the view that we're going to take? What's the view that I will be preaching? How do we understand this text? And I want to just give you two main points that are the overview to Revelation 20, two main biblical truths that come to fruition in Revelation 20 that I believe will uh, enable you to understand what view we will be taking together. Truth number one, the Bible teaches a future salvation and restoration for Israel. Truth number one, the Bible teaches a future salvation, so spiritual future and physical future, a future restoration, Israel being brought into a land, their land with peace, with a king reigning over them. You could say it another way. There is a salvific future for ethnic Israel promised in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, there's two types of prophecies, fulfilled and unfulfilled, right? Two basic categories, fulfilled prophecies. We could literally go around the room and just talk about prophecies that we know in the Old Testament that have already been fulfilled. A lot of them fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. A lot of them fulfilled in Israel in the past, that Israel, if they didn't obey, they were going to be taken into exile. They were. They're also going to be brought back. That's Jeremiah. That's Daniel. Uh, the prophecies of God towards his people, that he was going to bring them back into their land. Uh, they were not going to be exiled forever. Speaking of the Messiah, so many prophecies dealing with where he's going to be born, when he's going to be born, his life, his death. You remember the prophecy of he is going to die a poor man, but he's going to be buried in a rich man's tomb. That prophecy has been fulfilled. There are so many fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament. And at the same time, there are a handful of unfulfilled prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. They have yet to be fulfilled. They are promises made that have yet to be carried out. Now, as I was studying this, as I was preparing this little Bible study, I have 10 pages of notes of Old Testament prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. That would take us hours. I'm just going to go through one page of the 10 pages. I tried to kind of synthesize them down to give you a theme running through them. But I want us to turn to them, okay? So let's go back to Isaiah. Let's do a little Bible study together. Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19, beginning in verse 19. In that day, so this is a prophecy, in it, there's a day coming, and in that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. So an altar to Yahweh in Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its borders. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a champion and he will deliver them. Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so that they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway for Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria and a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, 
and Israel my inheritance. So the, the prophecy here is that there's going to be a day when Egypt, Assyria, and Israel all come together. There's roads connecting all of them, and they're worshiping Yahweh together, and they all congregate together. People go in different uh, nations, different countries, but they all congregate together in Israel to worship the Lord, to worship Yahweh, such that these three groups of people work together in Israel, and they kind of become one people as Yahweh's uh, worshipers. That has never happened in the history of the world. Never has Egypt, the Egyptians, Assyria, and Israel ever been on the same page, religiously speaking. It's never happened. We're waiting for that fulfillment. And I believe that that fulfillment will happen in the Millennial Kingdom, in Revelation 20, in this period of thousand years when all of this will transpire, when Jesus rules and reigns from Israel, from Jerusalem, as king over the whole world, this will take place. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. In this day, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little boy will lead them. You get that. A little boy is going to lead a lion as if the lion were his pet. A cow and the bear will graze together. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. My boys really like that verse, by the way. They're really excited about this verse. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. My wife is equally, equally uh, scared of these kinds of verses. They're going to put their hand over a viper's den, but apparently not be hurt at all. Verse 9, they will never be hurt or destroyed in all of my holy mountain. My holy mountain, that's Jerusalem. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and the waters as the waters cover the sea. That's definitely never happened before. So, by the way, as we read these prophecies, these are pr prophecies made about a future time period, and we only have two real options. We can either say they are still yet to happen or they have found some figurative fulfillment. Those are the only two ways you can take this. They are either literal prophecies that have a literal fulfillment yet to come, or they are figurative prophecies like this. You could say, well, it's just going to be a time of peace. And so there's figurative imagery, there's metaphors given where these two uh, diametrically opposed animals will be happy together because uh, they'll be at peace. Well, this hasn't happened literally yet, and I believe that the Bible should be taken literally unless the Bible tells us that it shouldn't be taken literally. And the Bible tells us those. It, poetry, uh, Paul says, I'm speaking in analogy, I'm speaking in metaphor. This, there's no metaphor here. It's just a prophecy. This is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. We're waiting for it. I believe it's the millennial kingdom. Uh, even Isaiah 9, turn back one more chapter. Isaiah 9, verse 7. You know this. This is a classic uh, Christmas text. Uh, Unto us a child will be born, verse uh, 6. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. That's happened. A son has been given. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is difficult to understand with regard to timing of prophecy. Verse 6 has happened. A son was given to us. Verse 7 has yet to occur. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Uh, I look around the world today and we cannot categorize the world as there's just no end of peace happening. It's just going into the entirety of the world, just a peaceful place. No. 
there's never really been a start of peace yet. <laughs> it's still just not peace. On the throne of David, he will rule over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness, and then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We're waiting for that. That hasn't happened yet in its fulfillment, in its entirety. You'll hear a lot of times in theology, there's an already not yet. Part of this has happened, but we're waiting for part of it. Isaiah 62, you can just write that one down, prophesies that after Israel returns from exile, they will return to their marriage with God in faithfulness to him. So that can't be talking about their return from the exile to Babylon and to Assyria because they came back into the land and then denied that Jesus is Messiah. They're not in that relationship with God where they're worshiping God as ethnic Israel as a whole. There's coming a day when they will, but it's not yet. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 3. Jeremiah writes, As God is declaring these truths, then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them. I will bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. There's an aspect of that that has absolutely happened because Israel has been brought back from exile, back into their land. Even in the mid-1900s, they got their land as a nation, as a country again, so they are in their land. Not at peace yet, but they're in their land. But then it says this, I will raise up shepherds, verse 4, over them. They will tend to them. They will not be afraid any longer. They will not be terrified. None will be missing. Now that hasn't happened yet. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king. There is no king in Israel right now. He will act wisely. He will do justly. He will... Give righteousness to the land. His days, uh, in his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell sec securely. Israel is not dwelling securely. Even when I lived in Israel, there were times when we would be hiking and there were bombs that were going over our heads. There were missiles that were being shot over our heads. It's not a place of peace. But God says there is coming a day when it will be a place of peace. Jeremiah 33 Go over to 33. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel, the house of Judah. This day is coming, it's yet to come, and I will fulfill my promises. That's what God is saying. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which you will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Again, there's no throne in Israel right now. There's no king sitting on a throne in Israel. The Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt sacrifices, to offer grain offerings and prepare sacrifices continually. That's not happening right now. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so if you can make day and night stop, if you can stop the 24-hour cycle that we have for a day, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be counted, and as the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. 
These are promises that aren't happening right now. They have yet to be fulfilled in the future. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37 say the same thing. It says that if uh, the fixed order of the sun, moon, and stars depart, if they flee, if we don't have the days, the 24-hour cycle, then so too God has broken his promises. But since those still exist, God's promises still stand. Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel prophesies to the mountains, and God says, tell the mountains that though they are at war now, there's a day coming when the prince will show up and will give them peace and will make this a place of dwelling in security where Israel will be safe and at peace, and there will never be an oppressor to walk over those mountains ever again. Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. It's an entire section. If you've read through Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48 just deals with the dimensions of the new temple. And by the way, the dimensions of the temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48, there has never been a temple with those dimensions in Israel. We're still waiting for that temple to be rebuilt. And it will be rebuilt for the millennial kingdom. And it will actually be rebuilt during the time of tribulation and then will exist through the millennial kingdom. Ezekiel 47 says that that temple will have a spring of water flowing from the temple into the land of Israel. That's definitely not happening. You can go to Israel today. There's no spring of water from the middle of the temple flowing out to the land. Turn to one more passage, Zechariah 9. I think Zechariah 9 is helpful. In Zechariah 9, you have an amazing picture of uh, verse 9, an amazing picture of the timing issue when it comes to the Old Testament. You know Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is the prophecy of the triumphal entry. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. He's coming humbly, mounted on a donkey, even the colt, the foal of a donkey. So that, that was fulfilled at the triumphal entry over 2,000 years ago, about 2,000 years ago. But then verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That one hasn't happened yet. Verse 9 has happened. Verse 10 has yet to happen. There's a huge gap in between verses 9 and 10 because Jesus is not ruling and reigning from his throne, bringing peace to the entire world as they worship him. That has yet to happen. You can write down Daniel chapter 2, the dream where Messiah falls from heaven like a stone, crashes into the other nations, and establishes his kingdom. That has yet to happen. Micah chapter 4 describes a time when Zion, uh, Jerusalem, will be the center of the whole world. The nations will flock to have its cares heard and disputed, to have any court cases disputed by the king of kings himself. And war will cease on a global scale. That hasn't happened. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant. David's descendant will be the savior. That's been fulfilled because the savior is the descendant of David. But the entirety of uh, the rest of that chapter, chapter 7, verses 10 and on, have not been fulfilled yet. We're waiting those verses to be fulfilled. Psalm 132 is a verse you could look at, Haggai chapter 2. I mean, you could go through the entirety of the Old Testament and see there were promises made to Israel 
that they're waiting for it to be fulfilled. Where is peace? Where is the Messiah? That's one of the reasons why they did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't bring peace. And so they're waiting. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. Biblically, they're waiting. We get to the Gospels, and they're waiting. When's the kingdom going to happen? We get to Acts, and they're waiting. Is the kingdom happening now? You get to the Epistles? No, it's not happening now. You get to the end of Revelation. You get to Revelation 19. And you're wondering, God, you made all these promises. When are they going to happen? I don't know if you've ever read a book where uh, the author introduces a character, maybe in chapter 1 or 2, and then for some reason, they're like dropped off the map, and you never, you never hear about them ever again. And you get to the end of the book, and you're in the second to last chapter, and you're thinking, did the author forget so-and-so? Why did they bring that, that person up? Why did they even invent that character? And then all of a sudden, they show up at the end, and you go, oh, this, this all makes sense. I think that's what Revelation 20 is all about. God made promises to Israel that, number one, Israel is going to be brought to a place of safety and dwelling securely in their homeland. And number two, they are going to be given salvation on an ethnic level, on a global scale ethnically, they will be given salvation. That has yet to happen yet. Revelation 19, we only have three chapters left. And as you come to the end of Revelation 19, you're walking into this territory of Revelation 20 thinking, okay, God, you made promises that have not been fulfilled yet. Well, what's going on? And Revelation 20 answers all of those promises. All of those promises. So what are the promises? Let me just sum them up. Four main covenants that God gave to his people in the Old Testament. Covenant number one, Abrahamic covenant. This is Genesis 12 through 15. The Abrahamic covenant promised an eternal seed to Abraham, the Hebrews, that would develop into a nation that will possess a land and they will ultimately come to a place where they will never be dispossessed of that land but will dwell in peace and safety and security with defined borders. And then here's the key. Genesis chapter 13, verse 15, God says to Abraham, and you yourself will dwell in that kingdom. You're going to dwell in that land. Abraham never dwelt in that land. He, dwelt, he came to the very bottom of the land of Israel, but it never was Israel. It was still Canaanite-owned, Canaanite-run. But Abraham will be in the millennial kingdom. Abraham is going to get the borders defined in Israel, peace in Israel, no more nations fighting against Israel, Jesus as king, and Abraham will be there, raised from the dead, just like Revelation talks about, the, the dead being raised and brought into the kingdom to let Jesus be king over them and dwell securely. Covenant number two, the land covenant. The land covenant shows up in a couple different places in the Bible, Genesis 12, Deuteronomy 30. It's redefined again, uh, or it's, it's uh, reaffirmed in Ezekiel 37. The land covenant is very simply that God promised a specific land given to a specific people, uh, the Hebrews given the land of Israel with specified borders and then peace and safety and security. Again, we don't have that. We have neighboring countries that are fighting against Israel. We even have the Palestinians inside of Israel. We have Jerusalem that's split up into four different quarters because no one can decide who owns this place. It's definitely not owned by Israel though there was a gracious act of God to give them their land back in the mid-1900s, they aren't dwelling in peace and security. The third covenant, we've got Abrahamic covenant, land covenant. Third, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, and it promised four main things. 
The Davidic covenant promised four main things. Number one, an eternal house that will never end. Number two, an eternal throne that will never go away. Number three, an eternal kingdom that will never be removed. And number four, an eternal king over that kingdom. Again, there's no kingdom in Israel. There's no king reigning in Israel. We're waiting for this fulfillment. There's an already not yet. The king has come, but he left. And he said he's going to come back to establish his kingdom. So we're waiting for that kingdom to come. When we pray, even as Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We want the kingdom here. There's a spiritual reality of Jesus being king over the whole world. Yes, but he's not king in the way that these verses described until he's actually sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. Fourth uh, kingdom, or fourth covenant, number one, Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, number two, land covenant, number three, Davidic covenant, and number four, the new covenant. The new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31 through 33. Again, already not yet. There's a part of the new covenant that has absolutely happened. The new covenant established and uh, begun in the communion elements and the blood of Christ being poured out for sinners. But there's part of it that hasn't happened yet. And the part of it that hasn't happened yet is that national ethnic Israel is being brought to a place of genuine salvation and trust in Jesus as their Messiah. That hasn't happened yet. It's promised in Jeremiah 31 through 33, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, there are people that would say all of the prophecies that we've looked at should be taken as metaphors and analogies to Jesus establishing his spiritual kingdom. This would be a typical all-millennial view that we're not waiting for a future literal kingdom with Israel, ethnic Israel, being in the kingdom. We're just talking about the church. The church has been given the kingdom. We've been given the keys to the kingdom, Matthew 16. Uh, so the spiritual kingdom is all these prophecies are talking about. The only problem with that, there's a couple of problems with that. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Remember Paul. Paul is a Jew. Paul's a Pharisee of Pharisees. And Paul's writing Romans after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So if the kingdom is no longer a future event that's a physical kingdom given to Israel, if it's only a spiritual reality, I don't think he would be writing what he writes in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage has the Jew? What benefit is circumcision? If we can all be saved... Great in every respect, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? There were prophecies given to Israel that were given to them alone. And then he says this, what then? If some did not believe, did their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? So Israel was given the prophecies. They say, we reject Messiah. We don't want him. Jesus is not our Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, fine. I will take this back, I will hold on to it, and I'll let the Gentiles come into the kingdom as well. So the question Paul is asking is, is God done with Israel? Is God done with ethnic Israel? Is God finished? Are they no longer the chosen people? And all those prophecies that were made to them to have a land, to have a kingdom, to dwell safely and securely, are all of those gone? Verse 4, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. He says, no, they're still yet to come. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 says that the promises of God haven't failed yet. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 
11. These promises haven't failed and they're never going to fail. And that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Well, go back to verse 25. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will be, not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God gave the gospel through Messiah to Israel. They reject Messiah. And God says, I'm giving the gospel now to the world, to the Gentiles. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come into salvation in Christ Jesus, then God will go back to Israel and God will press play again. It's pause right now, but press play again with his program on Israel to bring them to salvation. And that's why Paul writes verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. There's a coming day when Israel will be saved. It's going to happen. The question is when? That's the question. When is it going to happen? Because it's not happening now. When is it going to happen? And I believe it happens in Revelation chapter 20. I believe that's when it happens. I believe that the the bringing back of Israel into their land and bringing them to a place of salvation happens at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation, into the great tribulation. This is the entirety of God's plan for his people. If you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament describes that there's a period coming called the Day of the Lord. And this period called the Day of the Lord is the day, it's, an, it's a period of time when God is going to work with his people Israel again. He's going to go back to them and he's going to do two main things. He's going to bring about regeneration in ethnic Israel, and he's also going to defeat any physical oppressors in their midst. The day of the Lord describes the blessing of the enemies being destroyed, and the day of the Lord talks about judgment. The day of the Lord is this awful time period coming when God will work to bring Israel to salvation in him and destroy all of her enemies. Now, the Old Testament describes the day of the Lord in a handful of passages. And then Daniel chapter 9, God tells Daniel it's going to be a period of uh, seven years where the Antichrist is going to be raised up. He's going to make that covenant with Israel. And this period of seven years is a period where God's going to work in Israel to bring them to a place of salvation in him. But literally, that's all that's discussed in the Old Testament about the day of the Lord and about the the Antichrist, about the coming seven-year period of time. That's all we have in the Old Testament. We just know that God's going to work with his people to bring him back bring them back to himself. But we don't know how that's going to be worked out. And that's why in Revelation, we have seen chapter after chapter about what the day of the Lord looks like, what the tribulation looks like. But when we get to Revelation 20 and we talk about the kingdom, we literally have six verses about the kingdom. And a lot of people ask, why is there so so much ink spilled on the tribulation and so little ink spilled on the millennial kingdom? Well, because in the Old Testament... The millennial kingdom is described in such comprehensive terms that when you get to the New Testament, the only question we have is how long is this kingdom going to last for? We're told a thousand years. And then how does it usher in the eternal state? And we're told how. That's literally all we don't know. John knows that his readers are good Old Testament scholars. They know the kingdom was promised. The kingdom was prophesied. We're waiting for the kingdom. So when an Old Testament student gets to Revelation 20, they go, ah, there's the kingdom. Here it is. It's here at last. It's finally here. So you look back at the Old Testament, you see the day of the Lord. It's not as thoroughly talked about. There's a lot of question marks about the day of the Lord, a lot of question marks about timing, about judgment, about how these things are going to work. 
That's why Revelation is filled with the description of this period of time, of the tribulation, of all the, the judgments, the seal judgment, the trumpet judgment, the bowl judgment, how the Antichrist is raised up to power, how the Antichrist starts killing believers, how Israel is brought back, Revelation chapter 12, to believe in their Messiah. Everything that we've seen in Revelation this whole time is just built off of the Old Testament. Revelation fills out what the Old Testament briefly describes, namely the day of the Lord and the tribulation. And Revelation briefly describes what the Old Testament fills out, namely what the kingdom is and what it looks like. So, truth number one as an overview to Revelation 20 is ethnic Israel will be saved, regenerated in the future, and brought back into their own land to dwell with peace, safety, and security in a kingdom. We're waiting for those prophecies to take place. They haven't, take place, haven't taken place yet. They're going to in a future time period in the millennial kingdom yet to come. Number two, if we're asking the question, when will that happen? How will that happen? That's truth number two. It will happen in a literal thousand-year kingdom that Jesus himself rules and reigns over. We are currently in the church age. God has pressed pause on his program with Israel. When Jesus died on the cross, buried, rose from the dead, church age began. And just like Revelation, or just like Romans 9 says, there's a partial hardening on the Jews, on the Israelites, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, until the Gentiles have been brought in. And when the Gentiles are brought in at the end times, that's when God will press play on his program with Israel again to bring them to a place of salvation. And he will usher in, as we have seen in Revelation time and time again, he will usher in a kingdom to give to them after this time period of tribulation where they have trusted in the Antichrist and they find out he's not the Messiah and they know that he's not the Messiah and then they weep and they run to Jesus as their Messiah just like we see in the book of Zechariah. And after that, Jesus comes back destroys all of the enemies, just like the day of the Lord says he's going to do. He's going to destroy the enemies of Israel, and then he's going to bring peace to his people as he rules and he reigns in a literal thousand-year kingdom on the earth. Jesus himself talked about this. Go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Again, Matthew chapter 19 is after Matthew 16. I, I went to seminary to learn that, right? Matthew 19 happens after Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is what many people would say is the inauguration of the church, right? Uh, Peter, on your confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then obviously it's consummated at the cross. So we're after a discussion of the church. There's a program that God's going to give to the world, to the church. Does that mean that this kingdom that's going to be given to Israel on the earth is done with. Matthew 19, verse 28. Well, verse 27. Peter said, Behold, we have left everything to follow you. What then will, will there be for us? We've left everything. This is good old Peter, typical Peter. We've left it all. We're amazing, so what are you going to give us? Jesus said, Truly I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration of when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
So Jesus says, there's the church, and I'm going to work through the church, but then there's also the kingdom, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to sit on my throne. He calls the millennial kingdom the regeneration. That's the phrase that he uses, the word that he uses. He's talking about this future kingdom. And that's why when we get to Revelation 20, and it says, they judged. Who's the they? We already know who the they are. We know who they are. Back in Matthew 19, the 12 disciples. We, we know the apostles. We know uh, the, the rulers, the 12 tribes of Israel. We know people are given the thrones that was promised to them in the Old Testament, and Jesus confirms it in the New. But not just them. Not just Israel. Not just Israel. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. And the many uh, who are first will be last and the last will be first. That means Israel's going to get their kingdom and the disciples will be raised. They'll be there. Abraham will be raised. He'll be there. And everyone who has believed in Jesus as Messiah will be raised. They'll be there. We'll be there to enjoy the kingdom. The blissful time where Jesus rules and reigns in righteousness. Turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus has died. He has been raised from the dead. And he gathers, verse 4, he gathers his disciples together. He says, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for what the Father's promised. Back in the upper room discourse, the Holy Spirit's going to come. So, verse 6, they're all hanging out in the upper room. Church has been established, inaugurated, sealed with blood, consummated by Christ. Church age has begun. What do the disciples ask? What is the nagging question? What's the first question you would ask Jesus? A resurrected Christ hanging out with you and telling you this is going to be an awesome era of the gospel going forth. What's the first question you would ask Jesus? They say, so, Lord... Is it now that you're bringing the kingdom? It, we didn't understand the dying, the rising. You did that. That's great. Now the kingdom? And notice, so first of all, kingdom's still on their mind because it's all prophesied in the Old Testament. And then notice Jesus doesn't say, guys, quit it with the kingdom, man. We're done with the kingdom. We're in a new thing. What does he say? It's not for you guys to know that. It's not for you to know that, meaning it's going to happen, but it's not for you to know. But you, verse 8, will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the inauguration of the church, the apostles are still saying, kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say, no kingdom. He says, it's yet to come. It's yet to come. Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching, he includes verses that dialogue about the kingdom. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, describes the kingdom as a times of refreshing. Acts chapter 3, verse 21, describes it as a period of the restoration of all things. These verses, if you look at them, they can't mean a metaphorical sense of the spiritual uh, peace that God has brought through the gospel. Then one last passage that we'll turn to, and then we'll zip all this up. Acts chapter 15. Go to Acts chapter 15, verse 13. This is James talking at the Jerusalem Council. Verse 13. So Jerusalem Council is uh, a lot of things, but mainly it's Jews getting together saying in Jerusalem, hence Jerusalem Council, they're saying 
there's a lot of Gentiles getting saved. Do they need to become Jews in order to be saved? Can they stay Gentiles? What do we do? This is a new program. What's, what should we do? How do we do this? This is what James says, verse 13. James answers and says, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the temple of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So not only does James quote the Old Testament, but he quotes a place that describes the kingdom. So he says, it's okay that the Gentiles remain Gentiles. They don't need to proselytize and convert. We don't need to proselytize them and they convert into Judaism. Because you remember how the kingdom will be established after the time of the Gentiles have been fulfilled and then all the nations of the world together, Jew and Gentile alike, will dwell in peace in the millennial kingdom. Again, they didn't know millennial, they didn't know a thousand years, but they knew a kingdom, future kingdom. And so it's still literally on his lips. There's a kingdom coming. Let's wait for it. So, the millennial kingdom is a fulfillment of all of the kingdom promises given to Israel, that they would be given a kingdom of peace and of salvation. The promises were still looked for, even by the apostles after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they will ultimately find their fulfillment after the seven-year period of the day of the Lord, where God is working, day of the Lord is program and punishment. It's a punishment to all of Israel's oppressors. It's a program to bring Israel, ethnic Israel, back to regeneration in Christ the Messiah. God's going to do that in the future. So we have two truths, two biblical realities, again, overarching realities about Revelation 20. Revelation 20 is the fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies given to Israel where they dwell in a land in peace and safety and security and they're brought to salvation in Christ. That is going to happen and it happens in Revelation 20. It happens in the millennial kingdom. Secondly, there is going to be a literal thousand year period of time where Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem in his holy temple for a thousand years. That leads us finally to number three. Question number three. We've asked a bunch of questions, and this is where we're going to end our questions of overview. Two part, two sermons on the overview of Revelation 20. Here's how we're going to end it. What then do we do with the other views? What then do we do with the other views? Uh, I believe that the scriptures teach that Jesus is going to return pre-millennial kingdom. He's going to return, Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19, that's the second coming of Christ, and then establish his millennial reign, so pre-millennial. I believe that the Bible teaches that. What do we do with the other views? What do we do with amillennialism? What do we do with postmillennialism? Well, number one, see last week. But number two, before we ever move to critique or to say you're wrong, I think we need to try as best we can to get into their, into their minds and their hearts and understand where they're coming from. There is so much to benefit from post-millennialism and from all-millennialism. And it frustrated me. When I was studying these texts, I was studying these passages, these verses, and I would read commentary after commentary, and they were so ruthless in their approach to other views. 
They would say, you know, I'm Amil, and this is why these other views are stupid, and I don't know why anyone could hold these views. Or we're obviously pre-mill, and here's why these two other views are illogical. That's unhelpful to the body of Christ. I totally understand where post-millennialism comes from. I get it. It makes sense to me where they're trying to get it from the text. I totally get where they're getting all millennialism from. I, I understand where they're coming from. And I don't want to end our time of overview by saying we're pre-mill and everyone else is wrong. I want to end by saying I believe that this text is to be taken pre-millennially, but there's good to understand about the other views. Post-millennialism believes that we as the church will engage the world in such a way where the gospel has such power to overcome the culture and society as a whole. Premillennialists struggle with this very issue. We tend to say, it's all going to end badly, so why do we even try? And I have postmillennial friends that help me and encourage me. Patrick, the gospel has power. Don't just think it's all going to end badly. People will get saved. The church will never fail. Go into the world and preach the gospel. All millennialism just stares at the cross and says Satan was defeated at the cross. We're going to talk about all these in detail in the coming weeks. I love the way all millennialists, and that's the predominant view, by the way. That's the main view. I love the way that they stare at the cross, the inauguration of the church. I think premillennialism fights really hard to interpret scripture as literally as possible, at face value as possible, holds as much as it can continuity between Old Testament and New Testament, promises made to Israel will be fulfilled, not this replacement idea that Israel is now gone and the church has replaced Israel. But here's the reality. Either way, no matter what view you hold, and I'm totally cool if you hold different views, we must have respect and mutual humility for one another in the body of Christ. These are not salvific issues. In fact, if I can press it even deeper, our decision of how we're going to take Revelation 20 is not a matter of choosing between conservative theology and liberal theology. It's not like you're going to become some progressive Christian if you embrace post-millennialism. It's not the danger here. Many of my own historical heroes, many of your historical heroes in the faith are post-mill and ah-mill. Some of them even changed their view reading a great biography of R.C. Sproul, who kind of waffled back and forth. In fact, let's just be candid. R.C. Sproul said, I have no idea. There was a, a student who read his book on the end times, said, R.C., I don't know what view you hold. You wrote a whole book on the end times. I have no idea what view you hold. And he said, that's because I don't know what view I hold. And then he said this, the only view that I know I don't hold is premillennialism. <laughs> that's literally what he said. That's the only thing I know the Bible's not teaching. And R.C. is right now before the throne of God enjoying the Savior. The fact that men and women whom I love and respect so much in the Lord have settled in different camps just brings me freedom to know this is a hard issue to figure out. Let's be gracious about it. Last thing I'll say is this. And I hear this all the time. Let's not do this. Please, let's not do this. Maybe it only happens in nerdy theological pastor circles. But sometimes I'll hear things like, well, when we're in the millennial kingdom and we're sitting at the feet of Jesus, then you can apologize to me because you're wrong. 
can I just, like, let's be clear about this. No amillennialist is going to pout if postmillennialists are right. No postmillennialist is going to have offended, hurt feelings if amillennialism is right. And premillennialists are not going to be high-fiving each other during a literal thousand-year kingdom while all mills and post mills just sit outside the kingdom and go, we're so stupid. That's not going to happen. Every single believer will fully enjoy everything won for us by Christ, no matter what your position on the millennial kingdom is. That needs to inform our understanding of how we study this text. So, that's the Bible study. Here's the sermon. If God is being faithful to Israel and will not let his promises fail, he won't let his promises fail to you and to me. He promised. He will never leave you or forsake you. Money back guarantee promise. He promised hardships and trials. You can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. He promised if you come to him and you're weary and you're burdened, he will give you rest. And he promised that every single thing that you experience will work out for your good and his glory if you know him and you love him. He is a faithful God. We can trust his promises. Amen? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time to just study, to dive deep, to turn the pages of the Old Testament, maybe some that we haven't even cracked in a while. And I pray that we would just walk away from here with a settled understanding. Number one, that you are a faithful God. What you promised, you will bring to pass. And number two, that we need with charity and humility to treat other brothers and sisters who might not agree with us in this. We need to treat them with kindness and respect, never looking down on them, learning from them, and rejoicing in the God who has brought salvation to all who would turn to him. We pray in the matchless, precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, I'm so sorry to do this, Sam, but we're already over time. Can we just, you guys can't get on the mic, but can we just do an acapella chorus? <laughs>